Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb in the sea this interview with author and ultra runner Katie Arnold, we speak about love, loss, parenthood, and writing. At the time of the interview, I felt like we connected well about many of the topics, but it wasn't until recently that I more fully appreciated the toll that it takes on someone when a person that they love is suffering from a distance. As I reviewed this episode, I gained an even greater appreciation for Katie and her experience and her willingness to share it so openly and articulately with the world. Please enjoy this episode, and then be sure to read or reread her book, Running Home. I've read it twice and plan to revisit it again soon. Add it to your library this holiday season. You won't regret it. But first, a word from our sponsors. Like you, our lives have been impacted by the uncertainty in the world. While we appreciate some of the lessons that we have learned by slowing the pace of life down a bit, we also recognize the value of routine and consistency. We believe in setting goals and working toward them. Given that so many in-person races have already been canceled or postponed in 2021, we've created a virtual race series for the athletes that we coach at Peak Run Performance to put some dates and distances on their calendars to work and train towards throughout the year. We believe that the collective momentum of a community working toward a common goal can be empowering and motivating. We also feel that it can provide a greater sense of accountability. We are offering this race series to the athletes we currently coach at Peak Run Performance, but figure that we might as well invite others to join in on the fun. If you are looking for a bit more certainty in these uncertain times, please visit peakrunperformance.com and sign up for the newsletter. We'll be sending out more information about the Peak Run Performance virtual race series in the coming weeks. Today, more than ever, it's essential that we are making the right decisions to keep our bodies healthy, to live better, be resilient, take control, and be proactive for whatever the world throws at us. But we are overwhelmed with nutritional information, leaving us with more questions than answers. Does that even work? Can I trust it? Will that work for me and my goals? How do you know what your body uniquely needs unless you ask it? For the truth seekers, the change makers, and the goal setters, the answers are inside you. Insight Tracker is the ultra-personalized nutrition and wellness platform that analyzes data from your blood, your DNA, and your lifestyle to help you optimize your body and reach your goals. Insight Tracker's patented system will transform your body's data into knowledge, insights, and a customized action plan of science-backed recommendations. Are you ready to take control of your health and wellness journey? Unlock the power of your potential with Insight Tracker. Go to info.insighttracker.com forward slash early access to be the first to hear about Inside Tracker's best deal of the year. Welcome back to another episode of the Art and Science of Running. Today we have another really special guest that we're excited to share with you uh, in Katie Arnold. Katie is an author of the memoir Running Home. She's also a columnist for Outside Magazine and an editor. Um, she, in addition to being a writer, she is a very accomplished 
trail and ultra runner. Um, she's a Leadville 100 champion. She's won the trans run, um, and, and countless other races. And she also leads running and riding retreats. And so we felt like we could definitely, um, chat with, with Katie about the, the art side of running because she excels in both the art and the running side. And, and I'm sure there's in there too. So welcome, Katie. Thanks, Jacob. I'm excited to talk to you. Great to be here. Yeah, we're, um, we're really excited to have you. Um, and I should mention that my, my co-host, Mal Kent, isn't able to join us. I um, mentioned a, while, a couple episodes back that, that he has relocated to the other side of the pond um, in the UK. And so we can't always line up all of our schedules <laughs> with right. our guests. That being said, I, I'm really excited to, to have this conversation with you because I've personally read your book twice, <laughs> Running Home. Uh, and Thank you. Yeah. And um, every chance I get that um, when I'm on Twitter and people are, you know, asking for book recommendations, I, I do my best to to make sure that people understand what a what a treasure it is. And I would consider myself an avid reader, uh, particularly of running books. Yeah. But one of the things that has been mentioned on Twitter was, you know, is there <laughs> is there a, a, a really good book um, about running, um, but particularly about women's running and ideally by a, a, a female author. And um, not that you, you need to be pigeonholed into that spot, but I, I remember as a, as a high school coach and high school literature teacher, I try and encourage my athletes to read whatever they could, but there, there is a dearth of books out there by, by women runners and, um, and about female runners. And, and so um, I'm, I was elated when I saw that your book came out because it's beautifully written and perfect book for to, to, to fill that, void that exists um, in running literature. In well, thank you. Yeah, it's it, it's been fun to see it um, pop up on people's lists. And, um, and it's funny, too, because I never really thought of it as a running book. Um, I always conceived of it more as a memoir, um, and a, kind of a literary memoir about my relationship with my father and um, and my relationship with running, but sort of running was the through line. Um, and, but it's, it's fun to see how it's uh, perceived in the world and how, um, you know, people understand it. And, and so much of, I think how it's read is, is so individual, right. And the person reading it, where they are in their life in that moment, what they're looking for shapes really how they see the book. And so I, I think um, I'm, I'm so grateful that it's being um, perceived and interpreted in so many different ways. It means that it's really resonating with people on so many different levels. I've he heard tons of people as runners who read it and say how inspired they are. But then I met so many people on book tour who weren't really um, serious runners or runners at all, but who had been through profound loss and grief and um, responded to on that level. So it's, um, it's pretty thrilling to see it make its way in the world because it's really its own being, right? The book is its own thing, has always had its own energy. And um, I feel like I just brought it forth, but now it's, it's on its own path. That's what I, I feel actually makes it such a good book and, and why um, with so many books out there, why read it more than once? Mm. And, and, um, because it isn't just about running and, and yeah, I, I, I reviewed it again before we had this conversation because I wanted to make sure that I was current and, and I was thinking about everything that, that I had read. Um, 
and that I enjoyed so much the first time through. Um, but I, I also feel like I, I connected with it on a number of different levels, completely aside from the, the running piece. And, um, and that's, that's as a male. <laughs> that's yeah, a, that's great. I love that. That's as a father. Um, I, I mean, so much of it was, um, I haven't experienced some of the same experiences that you have in terms of the loss of a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I felt like reading the book was in many ways redemptive, um, for me as a, as a father, uh, of, uh, of a young daughter who, um, who may not understand why her daddy <laughs> isn't always there. And yeah. uh, I, oh, wow. I hope my daughter to uh, feel the love that you feel for your father um, and know that I love her the way that your father loved you. Oh, and, I love that. So it was, I, I read it at a very critical time in my life. Um, and it, it really, like I said, it, it gave me a lot of hope. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've got goosebumps. Wow. Yeah, I've heard from from um, lots of men who are also reading it from that perspective as a father who may not be um, with their kids all the time. I'm not sure your situation, but, you know, just for your listeners, uh, my father and I were very close. Um, He was a um, photographer for National Geographic. So he was a very creative person um, and, and a huge influence on me as a writer, even though his medium was pictures and mine was words. I knew from a young age, I wanted to be a writer. And I think a lot of that was inspired by my, how my father saw the world and lived in the world as, um, a really close observer of the world and all its beauty and, um, quirks and, and sorrows. But, um, that said, he and I, um, we didn't live in the same house and, and he had left the family, um, or we had left him. That's a little bit up for debate in the book. And, and part of the sort of unspooling of my history that I do in the book is trying to make sense of that separation between my father and me. But nonetheless, despite the physical separation, we were so um, attuned and, and very creatively um, alike. And, um, and that has taught me so much about how you can have intimacy with a person. Um, it doesn't always have to be proximity, right? And there can be so much that's shared creatively. And um, it's funny, even though my father was absent for so much of my daily life, he was so all in on my life and um, how he managed to do that from afar and what he taught me about being human is, um, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm still understanding the depth of that, but the the book running home really probes that and sort of um, how you can be very close to someone, but, but, you know, remain apart. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I view the book as 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 much a, a text on how I can be more present. Mm. I am physically there or, or not, and somehow how I can do what I need to do as a as a as a father, so that, um, like I said, so that my kids uh, know that I care, and um, and also to to help them cultivate those gifts. One of the things you said in the book um, is that your, your dad always appreciated the full story and, and taught you to see the arc and the texture. Yeah. And 
that's that's palpable in in your writing. I mean, it, it's it's a beautiful thing that, um, that like you said, they're they're two different media or mediums that you that you use, but um, the way that you are able to express with the pen um, what you see or experience um, is. I haven't actually seen his photography, but I would assume much of that comes from what he taught you about how to see the full picture. Yeah, it's really, he really was so, he just walked through the world like eyes wide open, but he had this beautiful gift too. Like he was very humble. And so, you know, like probably, I don't know many other photographers, but I would imagine it's, it's a trait that some photographers share, which is that, um, you know, he was comfortable behind the camera but it was not a passive role. So he didn't you know, need to take up this, the room and be the center stage, but he was behind the camera paying extremely close attention, waiting for those moments that come that kind of capture what it means to be alive in this sort of poignant beauty. Um, and, and so he was always on the lookout, but he didn't have to control it or create it. And I think that's a real humility. Um, and that, that profoundly influenced me. And so to be an observer is an act of humility, I think. It's to move through the world not thinking that you have to control everything or be the center of attention, but you can just be on the watch and, and glean so much from the world by, by being a close observer. And he really taught me curiosity, which honestly has... Um, just informed my whole life. Like I'm curious with my running and I'm curious about being in the mountains and how it feels and, and kind of the interior journey I go on when I run. And, um, and, and just hearing you talk about how you're trying to um, pass this on to your daughters, I realized that my book is also teaching me how to do that with my girls. And it's teaching me as much as it taught me how I was a daughter to my father it's teaching me how to be a mother to my daughters. So that's pretty cool. And I hadn't thought of it in that way until you said that. So thank you for articulating that because um, most of all, I want to pass on to my girls how to be curious and awake and compassionate in this world, which we need so much of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you, you are um, a very keen observer and and i really am appreciative for for what you were able to express in in your memoir um which interestingly even though it's it's about you that must be a a very challenging thing to step back and be an observer of your own life Um, Mm -hmm. but you did to to step back and observe and then share um and, and quite vulnerably what you had experienced through, through the love and the loss, um, through your childhood, through running, through, uh, through childbirth, all of that. Um, it's, it's just a beautiful piece, but you, in addition to the book, you, you also share with, with the world, um, some of the things that you've learned outside and, and through parenting, through your, your column that outside as well called raising rivers. Um, and, um, I mean, there you just go through all of <laughs> all of the titles and and we could we could have a conversation just right. self um but um 
in addition to your book, that's one of the things that I wanted to chat with you about um, is how how does someone work from home? Um, and, and even someone who has been working from home, um, how does someone still find time to be creative and and both have that creative outlet, but also that that need and ability to to provide for one's family in a in that space while while the kids are home because that normal has like that's not that's not just something that freelancers right. are doing it's something that most people in the world are experiencing yeah i mean everything's changed so much in the last 3 months and um um it's tricky i mean i think the the main thing to say is my kids are at an age where it's certainly easier like we're sort of in that sweet spot they're not underfoot um, and don't need as much hands-on attention. They're nine and eleven, and at the same time, they're um, they still want to be with us, and they're not chafing to be out with their friends during you know um, quarantine. So we have this kind of it, it is kind of the sweet spot. Um, that said, like. Um, mainly this past three months have felt in this very weird way for me, like a writing residency. (laughs) And um, because I have started work on my next book, which I had kind of been putting off um, or not putting off, but I had really been focusing so much of my work energy on um, doing book tour and promotion for running home. And then when I got this big chunk of time at home where we weren't making plans and, you know, as you alluded to, we do a lot of things outside with our kids and we're, we're always kind of planning adventures and backcountry stuff. And, um, so some of that was put on hold. Our, our trips were closer to home and, and there was just a lot less planning, which, which now just talking to you, I realize how much of my time and energy was spent on planning stuff, (laughs) whether it was like kids sports schedules or our next river trip or whatnot. And I think that's probably true of parents everywhere. And so when you took away the planning, we were able to live more day by day in the present. And that freed up a lot of mental energy. So I was able to start working on my book. And, and as I said, it's felt like I think having that uninterrupted mental space to start writing has felt like those writing residencies I've gone on where I've been gone two or three weeks and all you have to do each day is, you know, your life is very simple and distilled down to the just essentials, which is, you know, sleep, eat, write. And for me, running is, is, you know, a hundred percent part of my writing process. So, you know, sleep, eat, run and write. And I'm kind of on that program right now, you know, with, I'll, I'll sort of add jokingly, like with, you know, my children constantly popping in and interrupting or mom, this or mom, that. So it's kind of a writing retreat that is, has the kids around. So, you know, I joke that, um, yeah, it's like being on residency, but just having the kids kind of constantly coming in and out, but still, that I think that freedom from always living in the future, right? And we do that as, as I think a society, we're always like planning, you know, the kids lacrosse tournament, or we're doing this, and we've got this coming up. And we're not just right here right now. And the pandemic stripped away all that future stuff, because everything's so uncertain. 
So it put us all in sort of this radical present. And for me, that's been a really creative, spacious place. Again, not without a lot of interruptions and some tantrums, my own included, you know, and like a lot of fussiness, but um, just trying to see the overall good in it. It's been a really creative time. And I've appreciated that space. Plus, I think I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of a minimalist. So I like to have the fewer things to think about, you know, and, and those are my favorite things. It's like being a mother, being a runner and being a writer and being, you know, a partner to my husband. And so we've just gotten it right down to the basics. And I like that. It's, um, it's pleasing. <laughs> yeah. No, it, um, it certainly sounds idyllic. As you were saying that I was texting my, my 13 year old son to keep the two younger ones quiet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's like this idyllic, like writing bubble, but then like, you know, it's like, mom, I need to make the pizza for lunch or, you know, whatever, whatever. But, you know, you just kind of have to do your best in the moment. And, um, and all of that goes into the writing. I mean, I remember like when I was finishing running home, I had, as I just sort of alluded to, I'd done these writing residencies where you go away and all you have to do is write and you've got a place to stay and they're, food is prepared and it's, you know, an incredible setup that, um, you know, is, is really helps your artistic and creative process. Um, and, but when I was finishing running home, I thought, you know, gosh, I really want to do another writing residency to get, you know, just to take this across the finish line. And I looked around and, you know, there was a couple of Buddhist, um, Zen centers not far from me in Colorado. And I, I spent a little bit of time looking into it and like, should I go up there and just remove myself and get into that little bubble of writing, which can be so productive. And it does help to go really deep immersive in, in the writing. Um, but I just, I didn't pull the trigger. And what I realized is that the book wanted to be finished at the kitchen table, you know, with the chaos around me and it want, it needed that, input of sort of real life and the interruptions and the tension and the elation and kind of just the everyday joy of family life. And, and when I realized that, like that, that would go into the book um, and be part of it um, as a texture in the book, I, you know, I knew that staying home was the right thing then and, and the book has always sort of told me what it needed if I just listen. And I think that's true of, of life, right? If we, like, we know the answers inside of us or we know the, the right next step, but a lot of times it just is a matter of getting quiet and listening for it and also stepping out of our own way, um, you know, which is um, really what the book taught me over and over is that, like, don't inject my will on something so much that I ruin it, right? And kind of step aside. And I practice that in my running all the time, right? As a runner, a trail runner and a competitive athlete, like our egos can get so big and we want to just like control things and win and have, you know, have the narrative be in our favor. And it's exhausting. Um, And also I think we miss a lot of the mystery and some of the energy and, um, we close off to other options when 
we have such a tight grip on things. And that goes for our training too. I, you know, I've always been self-coached. I'm working with a coach right now, which is so different for me and it's been a real learning process. Um, but it, it's, I think learning to step out of our own way um, is such a good lesson. And that's really something my father taught me is that, you know, just let things unfold. It doesn't mean being passive, right? It doesn't mean just sitting there and being like, okay, life's going to happen to me and whatever comes my way. Um, but it just means not trying to control every moment and every outcome because that's exhausting. And I think you miss a lot of the beauty. Oh, that's really I how I try to run and train. If I could put train, maybe I put train in quotes because I don't often think of the way I run as training, but um, I'm, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a learning process for sure. You, you articulated that very well. And I, um, I, I, in addition to doing this, well, actually my primary, <laughs> my source of income is not this podcast, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's coaching. And um, a number of the people that I work with have been impacted by race cancellations and, um, mm-hmm by unemployment or underemployment or, or just the dynamics at home have either increased their time to train and think about training or decrease. So uh, I don't think anyone hasn't been impacted. Right. And it seems like the lack of structure, at least with other parts of life or the, maybe not even structure, but just the, the lack of certainty and, and kind of what you described in terms of like so much of our lives are spent planning ahead and, um, there is so much unpredictability right now that, that even things that we've always done, we're not able to do or things that we were planning on doing, whether that be a race or a vacation or, or whatever else, those, those are off the table now. And so in some ways we're having to go back to the drawing board. And in some ways, many things are just not even on the table. Um, we spoke before um, we started recording about a, a regular time that you and your family spend um, summer in Ontario and you've done that since you were young right Mm -hmm. yeah my whole life every summer yeah and that's that's not currently an option um I am currently in quarantine because I did have to cross the U.S. Canada border um to get my children that I was speaking about earlier um and now we're we're here in this beautiful place and we can't leave right for for 14 days how what day are you on uh, nine, I think eight okay. or nine. The government calls on a daily basis and tells me, so I, I just haven't had the call. Oh, yet see, today. this is good beta for me because you know we have been thinking. Well, if the border opens, would we go? And we've heard from our friends in Canada who have come in from their homes and, and other places. They're citizens, though, that it's very strict. You can't leave your property, and they do phone you, and and the fine is seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Which, yeah. you know, go Canada, right? Like, have I, I, I respect that. I respect that they are taking this seriously and have um, some, you know, structure from the top down on how to handle it. But, um, but boy, that's impressive that you're um, quarantined. So you can't even go out for a run, right? Nope. Um, oh, yeah. I strategically <laughs> made sure that everything was set up, that the treadmill, the spin bike, everything was <laughs> And I also, um, my other races had been, that I had been building for, I was going to run Boston and I was going to run a uh, road 50 K like right wow. at the end. Of it. And I, both of those were canceled. So I, I, I did a, 
kind of an FKT attempt or just I wanted to do a, a loop that I have never done before um, in the area. And so I did that like the day before I drove to Oregon and then drove right back. Like, wow. Uh, so, so now you're, so, re- you're recovering. It's the yeah, good, right? Yeah, just I'm, go I'm, hard, I'm, run yourself I'm, into the ground and then quarantine. You'll be like, oh, thank God. When would you ever take that much time off? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, it, it was it was very intentional and deliberate. And, and there has been an, enough to do and focus on for the last week. But now I'm kind of getting stir crazy and thinking, okay, yeah, that's a week is usually pretty good after a 50 K. Yeah. I, right. You know, start moving. So um, anyway, that's, that's how that um, is going. Um, I, yeah. Sorry, the races yeah. are so interesting because um, you know, I, I think I've learned really, like I know that there are a lot of um, trail runners and ultra runners and athletes who really um thrive on having a lot of races on the schedule and and kind of thrive on that the pressure of um you know preparation and training and um what i've realized is not having anything on the schedule i feel really liberated um and i feel like i can really express myself as a runner in the true way that i do without having these outward um performances to gear up for that said, I love racing and I love being in the race with the other runners. And I, you know, I, I'm the person who's like always chatting to people when I run and like, I'll talk to anyone just for company on the, on the course. And I, you know, I, I love coming into aid stations and visiting with the volunteers. Um, so it's, it's funny. I have such mixed feelings and I also do love the structure of knowing I have a goal, but what I, there's also a lot of pressure around it. And so having that removed right now um, has felt liberating. And I I do feel too, you get into a certain state as an ultra runner where it's like, you do one thing and then you're like, okay, I'm going to do the next. And then we're always like, what's next? What's next? And we're in that sort of future mode that I talked about before, like always one step ahead of ourselves. And we're not necessarily just present and appreciative for for what's happening now. And I think ultra running, there's so many benefits um, and it's such a good teacher, but it also can put us into that um, sort of acquisition mode of acquiring more distances and more, you know, um, finisher medals and more, um, you know, street cred or trail cred. And um, that's kind of a um, it, it can be a little risky to, to live in that space where we kind of keep having to up our own game, not necessarily because anyone's watching because for the most part, who really cares and who is watching. Um, and, and, but I think for our own feeling of worth, we feel like we need to keep adding and, um, and, and I don't think that's the main driving principle, but I think it's sort of a subtle backbeat. Um, for me, I, I'm, I feel like mountains are where I learn about who I am and, and the world and how we're all connected. But, um, you know, if I'm too goal oriented or too outward oriented, I lose some of that perspective. And I realize I'm just pushing to do the next thing and the next thing. And, um, so for me, it's that daily practice of finding the balance between having something I'm working toward and, um, you know, growing toward, I like that word better but also um, not so far out of myself um, that I lose the why or the meaning 
Um, so it, this has been such a, it's been an interesting time and to see everyone online, like I'm so impressed with all the different athletes that, you know, I follow on social media who are doing, you know, feels like every other second, a virtual challenge, or they've signed up for this or that. And, um, I admire that so much. I have not done any of that. I just, I actually just signed up for my first virtual challenge, which is the Leadville and hundred thousand feet challenge. Um, but I, yeah, it's just, it's so interesting to see how everyone responds so differently to this very unprecedented time. And um, I'm just, you know, I, I love observing it. And it makes me so curious to know how people are, you know, getting through it themselves. Yeah. No, I, like you said, I'm, I've been, I've been surprised and inspired by, by how some people have responded, mm-hmm. um, including some of the athletes that I work with, some of them that I that I thought would immediately contact me and say, okay, this doesn't make sense because I had a race planned and it's canceled. So I don't need any training. Some of them have like (laughs) tightened the screws even more and they're like even more disciplined. Uh, And then others uh, even tighten the screws on me. Like, Hey, I, you know, let's get more serious about this. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, That that definitely came as a surprise. And then others um, it's actually been, I think a healthy thing um, to to not feel like you have to compress um, fitness or truncate <laughs> like a a whole block of training or a whole you know what should be a half a year or years of training <laughs> into a two month or three month um, period that they that they are taking the time to kind of organically progress as as their bodies can without forcing the fitness and um, I, I, from what I'm seeing, um, almost across the board, actually, um, most of the athletes that I'm working with, like a lot of people are setting lifetime bests and, you know, maybe it's because their watches are different than what the, the race course would say or whatever, but Right. serious lifetime, like whether it's a marathon or a 10 K or, um, they're doing these virtual challenges and I, I'm getting the sense that so many people are actually, um, enjoying running more than they ever right. had. I, I feel that way too. And that, yeah, I feel that way that like the focus has shifted, which again, doesn't mean that we're not pushing ourselves or, or, um, you know, getting after it, but it's like, there's a different focus, I think. And I felt that even before it's weird. I really had this kind of sense that things were about to shift or I wanted them to shift. Um, and it was in, in the winter time. And, um, I went to a race, I went to the black Canyon 60 K in February. Um, and it's great race, beautiful, so well organized and incredible desert scenery, but you know, winter is a tough time for me. Like I'm skiing, I'm doing other things. And, um, so that is not at all like a peak time for me. And I went and raced and I just remember feeling the whole time, like we drove there from New Mexico to Arizona. So, you know, it was like a six hour drive. It felt like so many resources and such a big, you know, time, chunk of time and energy and resources to get there and get with go with the family and people had come from all over again they had traveled and um i just left there wondering like having this weird feeling that that was not sustainable mm-hmm. like for either our planet or for ourselves 
And I came home and I was like, gosh, you know, I, I can run 60 K out my door on like gorgeous trails. And I just was questioning like whether I should be traveling to race and if that was a good thing for the planet. And, and, and also I'd been really grappling with time away from my family. And I felt that the last year because my older girl is 11, right? So she's on that cusp. Just, it's like where time gets really short and, you know, you realize how think she's about to change so much. And um, so I was really grappling with like, should I, you know, travel to race as much? Um, and then, you know, within weeks, the pandemic happened and it was like, oh, right. Hadn't I been like wondering about, did I want to race as much? Do I want to leave home? Is, you know, should we be traveling as far as like a human species, you know, to do um, these things that we can do out our door. And then lo and behold, it was like the whole world changed. And it, it's interesting how in some ways it was an answer to that. You know, there's been so much suffering and, and we are so fortunate because we're healthy and um, people we know are healthy and we're not in high risk and we're certainly not frontline workers. Um, so I don't want to make light of that, but I do think in a weird way, it's kind of um, been an answer to, I think, some growing questions that probably, you know, more, more of us are feeling than we care to admit, right? It's like, what is sustainable for our planet? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a really curious time. Yeah, you, you make some really good points. And um, I should note that in addition to coaching, um, it's mostly my wife, uh, Amy, she, she manages a a nationwide trail running series that we've had to <laughs> cancel and convert to virtual. Um, and surprisingly has, has probably required more work, <laughs> at least really? on the front this transition. Like I, we're not sleeping a lot um, because with, as we're making this transition, but we also, um, we co-direct a, a stage race um, at the end of the summer in, in Revelstoke, British Columbia. And we've had to cancel that and postpone mm. it until next year. And um, as hard as that is on us, um, financially and uh, and it does you know it changes everything for us um, in a lot of ways it's um, we live in a beautiful place and we want to spend as much time as possible outdoors with our family and yet at the same time if every single weekend during the, <laughs> the months where there isn't snow um, on the mountains or on the trails um, if we're putting on events for other people, which again, it's a choice and we're grateful for that opportunity. Um, we don't have those weekends with our kids. And, right. and so uh, this time where our kids have been out of school for longer, um, doing online school and things like that. And then also just the fact that for the first time, at least since we've been together, um, we actually, <laughs> even, even though there's so much uncertainty, we actually have August to think about right. like, what we do as a family rather than, let's go put on this race, which we love doing. It really is like a big family reunion. My mom comes up, takes care of the kids and our you know, we, friends from all over the world come and help us put on the race. So it's not like I'm complaining at all about having to do that because we love putting it on. And right. yet at the same wow, we might actually have a summer, like a real life summer. Right. Our kids. And to see that's such a, that's such a good um, outlook is to see the opportunity and the uncertainty. And that's really what I've been trying to practice is like, okay, there's so many things that we love to do that we can't do, but there is also this opportunity for doing new things or, 
you know, growing in different ways. Like last night, so my daughter's 11 and she just graduated from sixth grade. And as a graduation gift, we got her a pair of rollerblades, which may be like the best pandemic diversion or like the worst idea in the world, like straight to the ER. We don't know yet, but we went out after dinner and we've, we've been walking every night after dinner. And I love walking and I just love walking around our neighborhood in Santa Fe. And, um, and, um, the walks have totally changed over the, the course of the pandemic. Like in the beginning when I was, you know, when it was all fresh and everything felt so foreign and frightening, I would go out and listen to like Dharma talks, like Zen, you know, podcasts when I walked. So I would call those my Dharma walks. And then Pippa, my older daughter started wanting to come along. So then I called them my daughter walks and we would talk all about sort of how she was adjusting. And then it evolved into um, the dog was depressed, right? Like you think dogs would be so happy during the pandemic because their people are home. Well, Pete, my dog is so um, sensitive and emotional um, that he was picking up on all our sort of nervous, sad energy. And so Pete got depressed. So we started doing our walks, started to be about Pete and we'd bring a tennis ball. You could walk down the middle of the road in Santa Fe and throw a ball for the dog because there was no one out. So then we had like the, the walks where we cheered up Pete. And then last night we started doing, the girls took the rollerblades out. And so now our walks have become rollerblading. And I just, we laughed so hard last night watching them try to rollerblade. And, you know, just that kind of amazing beginner's mind that you have so often when you're a child, like everything's new and you don't have that ego or that self-consciousness. And it's just all exciting. And to see the world through their eyes and to experience that was just I love it. And I, and I said to them, I said, you are always going to remember the summer. This is the summer that like we stayed out rollerblading till dark and, you know, we didn't go to Canada and everything was different. But, you know, I tell you, like, it's, you know, when you look back on your childhood and the things you remember, like this is what they will remember. And, um, I think it's, it's good to step out of our normal patterns, right? Because so many times when things are familiar, we just go on autopilot and um, we're not paying as a close attention. And, um, you know, just going back to my book a little bit, like running home was really like when you're in a grief, you know, when you're in grief, that is really one of those seismic shifts where you're sort of snapped out of your normal life where everything feels certain and known. I mean, because death is really that moment where you realize like, actually, we never had control and it's just an illusion that we do. And so, that it breaks you from kind of your your sleepwalking through life and how no matter how painful it is and it, grief is so painful because it's not a linear process right like it's two steps up one step back or one step up two steps back but i will say that it is you're so awake when you're grieving and and that's a real gift. And and there's not, you know, it's easy to go through life sort of just on autopilot. Um, and like I said, living ahead of yourself in the future. And um, that was this this gift of grief that I didn't, I hadn't expected and hadn't known. There's many hard things about it, and you know, you just it, like it's it's just all consuming. But but when I look back, that was um, one of the more beautiful things about it. That I hadn't expected. Yeah. Well, you you articulate it so well. I 
the second time through, I, I stopped a number of runs and drives to make notes on my phone, either mm-hmm. audio notes or whatever. And so I, I have pages of notes from the book mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, listening to it. And, and in fact, I think the first time I listened to it, um, and, th- and that's you actually reading. It, it is. Correct? Yeah, I narrated it, which was amazing. That was like a whole other journey. Right, having written it, and then like it was like two, you know, a year later that you read it, and and um, yeah, it felt again like its own thing, and that I was just kind of like giving it voice, but that it had come from its own energy. It's hard to explain, but um, but it was it was um pretty amazing to read it. Yeah, well, I thank you. I, I can't even imagine. Um, how all-consuming and stressful <laughs> and uh, uh, just just challenging both of those processes mm-hmm. were, and um, and yet I I can honestly I, the first time I listened to it I was actually um, I was marking a course and, and also scouting out different portions oh, cool. of the race that we're doing and so um, you know in in this race it's like bear spray is mandatory and oh wow aren't allowed um and there were certainly some spots where it was like i need to take my headphones out like i'm like going through a grizzly den right now right bald um and and yet i i vividly remember certain points of the course that i will always remember because of some of the things that you said or that you wrote and and just like how much they impacted me on on some of those locations so those your book has made some of those places sacred to me. Um, oh, and, that's so cool. That's and, so and the, sweet. I love hearing that. As I ran from my own, from, from just out the door, um, the second time through some of those same spots, I, I can tell you some of those locations, you know, just, Oh, and this, I remember when you said this and I was here and, and that kind of thing. And so, um, it, it really was a, a, a life changing book for me. And I, um, I'm really grateful that, um, even though I haven't had all of the same experiences or at least from the same perspective, um, they, they've certainly given me great insight, um, as a runner, as a, as a father, as a husband, <laughs> um, and hopefully as a, as a good father to my daughters. Yeah. Sounds like you are. It sounds like you are. It's funny you say that because I actually listened to my book too, not the audio that I narrated, but um, when I got like the final pass of the book from my um, editor, you're going to, I think you'll like the story. Um, It was, it came as, you know, a document and it was um, this time of year, exactly like late May, early June. And, you know, to sit down and read, um, a 340 page book, like, and to really be, you know, pay close attention. Like that's a lot of time sitting and at your desk. And I was like, Oh, it's like the best time of year for running. I'm, you know, I'm like coming really into my own at that time of year. And the mountains are just getting open from snow. And like, all I wanted to do was be up high. And I was like, gosh, what am I going to do? Cause I have to send in these these changes. And someone told me that you can have your, um, computer read to you. Like, um, and so I figured that out. And so I had the, um, I basically had this computerized voice and I picked a British woman, 
um, because, she, and she sounded so smart in British accent. Like I just, I was like, boy, this is smart. <laughs> and I had her narrate. I mean, I had her read the book to me. And like you, I was running up high. And one day I went and it was like, I think I ran like 35 or 40 miles because I was so engrossed in the story. And I don't mean that in like an egotistical way. Like I'm the story's so great or anything, but like, it was so, um, like you said, it was so connected to the place and the experience of running. And I really tried to write the book. I shouldn't even say tried, but like what I would do because writing is so central to my creative process. Like the, I wanted the book to feel like running and to have that energy of flowing. And so then to have it read to me while I was running made me feel superhuman. And I was like, I think I had one of my biggest days. And it was also because they were, the forest service was going to close the forest the next day for fire danger. So I was like, I had to get in all my vertical to last me, like who knows how long. And, and I was just like on overdrive listening to that British woman who just had the, she was so smart sounding and she made my book sound so smart. But yeah, it was a, it was a really kind of magical thing that like you, I have, I always remember this run because I was listening to parts of the book. Well, it, you, you really do um, an amazing job describing um, some of those life experiences. And, and also um, when you do talk about running, your, your descriptions of running surpass descriptions I've read in countless books about running and your your discussion of flow and things like that. And, and I'm not just fanboying out. I I do want people to to read the book because it's that good. And, um, and, um, and I don't think it's just because of the experiences I've had, um, that, that I connected with it. I, I, I feel like it will resonate with, with any reader, regardless of where they view themselves, um, as runners or, or just, Humans. Humans. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I didn't, I have met so many people who just, um, you know, say you express something that I felt and I didn't know how to express. And as a writer, like that's like, okay, just put the pen down because like, that's all I need. You know, when you hear that is that you've expressed something that is, um, so personal, but is also like a universal human feeling. And, um, so I love hearing from readers and I've gotten so many letters and it's funny. A lot of people are like, I'm sorry to take your time. And I'm like, just talking to the screen as I read it, like what? Like I live for these letters, like as writers, like we love to hear from people. Cause there's so many times you're just like anyone out there, you know, like you have no idea. And, um, so it's really, it's so fulfilling to hear that, um, running home has touched people in so many different ways. And, um, you know, men and women and all ages and runners and non-runners. And um, yeah, it's, it's pretty humbling. And I also love that, like, just to plug my, my father again, like, because he was a photographer, he had this incredible archive of images, both professional from like his entire National Geographic career, um, but also his personal archives of, of my childhood. And he, um, you know, as you expect, as a photojournalist was like this incredible documentarian. And so he, the volume of pictures he had was incredible. And we knew those pictures existed. And so I knew from the beginning that I would want to include some photographs in the book. Um, 
but the really special thing is that my father had um, been working on his own memoir. He never called it that outright. Um, it was just his, he was working on what he called his project, but he was this beautiful writer. Um, and, and I didn't know that he had left so much writing behind, um, but he was, you know, I think he was trying to assemble his own memoir and um, he got sick and um, his illness was very short. So he, you know, it was three months from when he was diagnosed with cancer to when he died. And so he ran out of time. But what he did was he left behind this incredible archives and of writing and images, but also like recordings. Like he would carry when we were kids, one of those Panasonic recorders around and he would press play and he would just record like the most mundane things like us playing a game of sorry or us telling ghost stories and all of those things. I found after he died. And um, so to sort of piece together his life and our life as, you know, his kids and our, our lives with him through this material was, was amazing. And, um, and there were some, many things I found out that I didn't know that were quite painful to learn that sort of changed or upended how I saw myself in my childhood. And that's a lot about what the book is, is sort of running into that discovery of our relationship and his life, but also my own potential as a writer and a runner. Um, but I feel really fortunate that um, I was able to include some of his pictures. I mean, just scratch the absolute surface of his talent. Um, but um, I feel like in a way, I was able to do what he didn't have time to do. And of course, his book would have been very different than mine. We all make our own accounts, and his story would probably be seem very different than mine of of some of the same circumstances. But um, I'm just I'm just grateful to share some of his work with the world because he did have such a curious way of seeing our our world and our sort of fragility and vulnerability and beauty as humans. Um, so that's a really special part of the book that I don't get to often talk about is is his photographs. And when I, if I can just go on for one more second, when we when I was editing the pictures to include, I remember I had this moment of like, oh my god, there's no way I can do the photo edit on this book because you know my dad was the photo editor, like he had been spending 20 years of his life digitizing his images and editing photos, and like it was his, you know, he had to do it. And, but he was, he had died and he couldn't do it. And so, and I remember my sister just called me and she, and I said to her, like, I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. I'm not qualified. And she said, you're the only person who's qualified to do it. And I thought that was such a gift, her saying that to me and that I could bring forth kind of my, you know, my father's vision through my book. It was, it was really special. It's clear even just hearing you share that. And thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, I I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I do vividly remember some of the quotes that, that you share from mm-hmm. um, writing um, and, and some of the photos. And um, and even just the description of like the, the extensive annals that he kept of yeah. photography and, uh, and of his own writings and um, without getting too much into my own story my my dad has file cabinets full of a journal that he has kept since 1970 wow oh. and 
Um, and it is, it is extensive and exhaustive and, and, um, I, I clearly haven't read it all, but there have been times in my life when that was my only source of information about anything happening anywhere in the world. And, and somehow, you know, any care packages or anything wouldn't get to me when I was in certain parts of the world, but my dad's journal somehow made it. And, and it was so comforting to get, you know, a monthly update on, on not only his life and the life of, you know, my, my parents and, um, and siblings, but, you know, he, he talked about a lot of things and sometimes he would include, you know, snippets from, from the New York times and stuff like that. And I was like, well, that's kind of nice to know that that's it's happening. Like a time capsule. Is he still well, alive? He is. Yeah. Um, but as, as I read and, and listened to your book, I thought of, uh, of that project, uh, of what that would, what entail. Um, and it's, it's not something I'm necessarily looking forward to or trying to usher in at, at any time in the near right. future. Um, it is, um, it, it made me so grateful that you had the experience that you had yeah. in life. That, um, as um, I think sometimes people see creatives or or people who spend that much time recording what they do as as in some way um, selfish or narcissistic, yeah. and yet in reality, it's it's the exact opposite. Like I I can't I know that I have benefited personally from having that lived experience with my dad, and I know I will be able to look back and, and glean even more. But I'm excited for my my kids and their kids to be able to. Access. It's a real generosity. I like what you point out that because there are moments and and that's the kind of common thing is like, oh, to write a memoir is so self-absorbed or self-indulgent or narcissistic. And um and to keep journals like this is like you're so interior, like it's just about you. But really, like my feeling is when my father, when I found everything he left and I, the night he died, I went down to his office and like, I don't, you know, I, his office was always an open door kind of place. And, but his office was in the basement. So it's not that I had never gone down there or known what was there. I don't know what that is. Sorry, but those beepings. Um, I'm trying to get rid of that. Um, But I, the night that he died, it was like, I needed to be close to him. And I sort of felt like if he was going to be anywhere in the house, it would be among his stuff. And I just went down there and I was, that was the first moment that I really um, understood sort of everything that he'd been doing in his life and, and sort of capturing and writing about and, and the volume of it. And it was, um, a little intimidating because his death was so fresh. I mean, he had just died like a couple hours earlier. And um, so I couldn't go through it uh, at all, like at all of it. I mean, but what I did was I just picked something up from um, the pile and um, flipped open and, you know, found some incredible things just right there some really painful things that sort of just like a gut punch, but, um, that became the pattern for how I, um, I went through his material, like someone else with a very different kind of mind might've sat down very systematically and like chronologically and, you know, cause he had organized it so well. So you could start at the beginning and go forward in time. But my mind is, is a little bit more circular, like not as organized. And um, I, I just would pick things randomly and read and, and then things would kind of filter up to me, you know, like, I would find these tapes 
Um, and I write about this in the book that I found these tapes and I brought them home to Santa Fe, but I just stuffed them in a corner, like just for whatever reason, I wasn't going to listen to them. And then I pulled them out at this moment. Um, and I, and when I listened to them, um, I was in the exact right place to be hearing it. And so it like that sort of scattershot or more organic approach really is really how it happened for me. And it's, it's how the book, um, how it's presented in the book is, are these discoveries. And um, I think I realized toward the end that probably part of me, I was doing that was to keep from getting to the end of the material, right? Like to save my dad and to sort of savor it and, you know, um, not run out of those notebooks because if I thought if I came to the end of the last page of the last notebook, that there would be nothing left of my dad. But what I've actually learned since is that it keeps going. And I, like just a few, you know, six months ago or so, my stepmother was selling the farm where she and my dad had lived for 40 years. And she sent me like six boxes of his record collection. So all of a sudden, I'm having my dad's music in my ears, you know, and that brings him back. And she sent more boxes of, of his personal papers. And I'm looking at them right now. I haven't even really cracked them, but I probably, I know that when I do, I'm just going to like fish around to the middle and pull something out and do it that way. And it'll be like the mystery of my father continues. And um, I don't know. It's, I, I love that. Like there's not really an end. And that's kind of what I learned the most from my father's death and from writing the book is that the things we think are the end are actually the beginning. And um, in some ways, my relationship with my father, like I know him more now than when he was alive. And I mean, I wish he was still here. It's not like it's better this way, but it doesn't end when they die. And I hadn't ever experienced that. So that's been kind of a a beautiful thing. Thank you for, for sharing him with all of us in, in some ways, I feel like your book <laughs> also extends his life to, uh, to others and, and, and helps us learn from. Some oh, of the I'm so glad. Um, and, and yet, I mean, I, we talked about memoirs and journals a little bit. Um, much of the book is a tribute to him, but, but it's also a tribute to your mom and, <laughs> and, and right. to mother. And that's what I find beautiful as well is that it's you've somehow woven this together, this, this grief and loss and love all came about at the same time that you um, were becoming a mother. Yeah. I mean, so there was so much happening um, and, and your descriptions, again, I've, I've never personally experienced being a mother, but I, <laughs> um, those descriptions were, were equally as vivid. Um, and, and at least from the limited experience I have seemed very acute and, and, and just, um, really, um, really sharp descriptions. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. Like the torment and the absolute like ecstasy of being a mother, right? Like you never have known worry. Like, you know, the minute you have this like newborn baby and you're like, Oh my God, I have to keep this thing alive. It's like a little animal. I remember, and I write about, I think I write about this in the book that like right after Pippa was born and I hiked my entire pregnancy. I didn't run, not because I didn't think you should run when you're pregnant, but it just didn't, like it felt uncomfortable. I felt like, you know, when you eat a huge meal and then you're like, your stomach is straining. I just, so I hiked, but I hiked every day and like, um, 
I think we joke too that like when Pippa was born, like she was so used to me hiking her when I was pregnant that like she needed motion to go to sleep. And, um, she, you know, like she would, she was hard to settle at home, but like I put her in the carrier to go for a walk and it was like, she'd be snoring. I wouldn't even have taken like three steps from my car at the trailhead and she'd be snoring. But uh, right after she was born, um, we were out walking and it was like two days after, you know, and I'm still like recovering from childbirth. And, um, and I just had this feeling, this new mother feeling of like, oh my God, what if we accidentally put her down in the grass and like a coyote took her away, right? Like you would never think you'd have that feeling. Like who has that? Um, but that's like what motherhood is like the thoughts that come into your head. And it's like the survival of the species sort of depends on those thoughts, but they can drive you bananas. Like, I mean, I wouldn't set the baby down to be eaten by a a coyote, but like I started having those thoughts, the same thoughts that you have is like, is the baby in the bed with me? You know, and you have these like middle of the night kind of like hallucinate sleep deprived hallucinations of like, did I bring the baby in the bed? And is she down like tangled in the bed sheets? You know, and so it's like this kind of like mental state um, that I had never known before. And, And that really like I'm sort of making light of it because I think it is important to la- be able to laugh at ourselves and see the humor and things. And that's why my husband is like the absolute best person in the world for me. Cause he's so funny. He's all, we can always laugh at ourselves, but like, I will say that the, um, that childbirth and becoming a mother that coincided with losing my father. So it was when my second daughter was three months old that my, my father was diagnosed. And, um, even though it was my second baby, I was like, you're still like a mother all over again for the first time, you know, when you have your, your baby, your second baby, and it brought forth all of those same feelings of protection and vulnerability that you feel like as a mother or as a parent, like I have this new baby, like my job is to keep the baby alive. And so I have to stay alive. Right. And that's like your only goal. And that's why, like, you have that thing called baby brain where you can't focus on anything like story deadlines. I remember my handwriting went to shit. Sorry, I just swore. But my, like, I keep a notebook every day and my handwriting in my, in my journal was so sloppy. And I was like, oh, that's because all my energy is literally going to keeping this baby alive, like nursing and, Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't think about work or you get that fuzzy brain because you have such a singular focus. Um, but I think because that happened in really quick succession with my father's diagnosis, it heightened that feeling of vulnerability and, and anxiety that is that's normal as a new mother to feel like anxious about, oh, my God, I've got to keep the baby safe and I have to stay safe. But it just amplified it. Right. So then I develop this really acute anxiety. Um, and some of the book is about that, like how I manage that and running was really my way through it. You know, I live in Santa Fe, so there's tons of alternative healing modalities here and I'm so open-minded. I'll try anything. And some of them worked, but you know, the thing that really worked was running into the wilderness and running into nature to feel that connection with something bigger than myself bigger than the death of my father that could hold it. It didn't diminish my fear or my loss or my grief. It didn't diminish my father's life, but it felt like nature could hold it. It was big enough. And um, so that's really, you know, just to sort of go back to the arc of the story, that's really when I got into 
the ultra running because running was where I felt um, like I wasn't dying. It's not funny to say, like I was so, my anxiety manifested that I was sure I was dying of something. And, you know, I didn't know this at the time. That's fairly normal thing in grief is to sort of take on the pain and illness of the person you lost. Um, but I didn't know that. And so, you know, I was really convinced for like probably 18 months that I was dying of something or another. And it was sometimes like a different thing every week, but running when I was in the mountains, you know, in the trees above tree line, I didn't think I was dying. And so I ran more and more because I like that feeling of not thinking I was dying. Um, and that's kind of how I ran into, you know, being an ultra runner. But I've been a runner my whole life since I was a kid. And it was my father. And I write this story in the book, which is one of my favorite chapters of how I first started running. When I was seven, I did a 10K um, near his farm in Virginia. And it was a total lark. I mean, my dad suggested it, but he was not an athlete. I mean, he was an adventurer and an outdoors person, but he was not a competitive athlete and didn't run. And yet he just threw this idea out for us. And I was like, all right, you know, wanted to impress my dad. And um, the race was a, like a disaster. I mean, we finished, but it was like a lot of walking, a lot of crying. He didn't even run it with us. He was at the finish line waiting to take pictures, and which is so 1979, right? Like now, who would ever let their kid run a road race alone for the first time? You know, you wouldn't. And uh, we'd be with the kid, like coaching. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, my dad's like, I'll see you at the finish line. <laughs> so funny. But he, that was really my dad. Like, I, one of the greatest things was that he introduced me to running that day, but then he did not like foist it on me. There was no part of him that was like, now, Katie, I want you to get serious about running and let's see what you can do and let, let's have it be a reflection of me. You know how as parents now, like we want our kids to do these badass things because like it's going to make us look good. There was none of that back then, you know, and he just was like, whatever. And so I started running after that, but not because he pushed me into it. He, he really could have cared less. And so I, I say his like, you know, two great things with me and running is that he introduced it to me and then he totally backed off and let me have my own relationship with running. And so it became this very intrinsic joy for me. Not at all. Like I didn't compete. I mean, I ran that race every year and it was sort of a fun family tradition, but I didn't join my high school teams. And so running was a really deeply personal expression for me. And it was very closely linked to how I wanted to be a writer in the world. And I knew that from a young age. So I got to just run for fun, like with the Walkman out the door. And like, you know, I would write stories in my head when I ran. And I think that's why I'm still running at my age in my 40s and like running with as much kind of joy and curiosity is that I didn't ever feel like I had to run for someone else. And um, so dad, wherever you are, thank you for that. Like it sort of looked like but that benign neglect of parenting in the 80s and 70s, but it was really a gift. And I think I try to remember that with my own kids is like, let's not foist our own ambitions onto them. Certainly let's give them all the opportunities to try things but like, if it's not intrinsic, right, if it's not coming from within them, like chances are they're not going to find joy or inspiration from it. And they probably won't stick with it. Um, and there have been, you know, I've written about this for outside is like when kids specialize in sports, 
you know, too early, there's so much higher risk for injury, burnout, and, you know, a lot of them just drop it. But, you know, for me, running has been a lifelong relationship. And um, a lot of that I credit to not just my dad, as you mentioned, my mom too, like, she didn't really care if I ran either. So, you know, you like to do what no one, when no one's paying attention. I really like to do things when no one's paying attention. I like to be that sort of under the radar person. And that's my temperament. I think other people love to, you know, when people really pay attention, but for some reason, whatever my psychiatry and my psychology and sort of family background is, I like it to be that kind of kid out of nowhere. And that's what running could give me. It kind of gave me this invisibility because no one really cared. Also, my sister was six feet tall and she ran track and cross country and was like really good. So I could just kind of like be invisible. It's worked for me. <laughs> it, it's it's worked very well. And I, I really appreciate you um, saying all of those things. And I mean, as I'm, as I'm going through the, the titles of some of your articles, um, you you address that specifically in some of the articles that you've written um, and you address it a bit in the book. Um, the the other co-host for this show, Mal Kent, and I have have chatted, and we've we've talked about <laughs> even doing an, an episode on early specialization and things like that because it's the same deal. He he was a world class climber, and his for years like represented the UK for decades. Mm-hmm. His parents showed zero interest other than we're not yeah. going to buy all your stuff, and if you want to figure out how to get wherever you need to go. Um, and so he, it was like you described in articles, like it was play for him. It wasn't, you know, this right. competition regiment. or like performance. Yeah. And, um, I'm by no means as accomplished as you or Malk, but, um, I, I grew up in a family of six kids in a small mm-hmm. town. Sports are king. Neither of my parents ever participated in organized athletics. And, three out of the six kids in my family earned athletic scholarships and got our school paid for, even though that was like the goal of like a huge portion of the people in that town. Wow. And very few other people ever got athletic scholarships. How, how does that happen? <laughs> that like the, the parents seemed to show the least interest. I mean, it wasn't that they weren't supportive, but it was like, they knew that as soon as if they tried to take ownership of it or that would, that would make us disinterested. Um, and then right. when I coached kids, that was like, as soon as the parents jumped on it, like, Hey, this is our ticket out. Or this is, this is our chance to like be viewed in the community as like leaders and stuff like that. Uh, it very quickly, like they, it was like, they stole that love for play from their kids. And all of a sudden it became a chore for the kids, not a, not something that they enjoy doing. So, um, I saw it with young men and women, but uh, sadly I saw it probably more with young women. Like that, that yeah. as as would jump on this, like, all right, this is your, this is your ticket out of, you know, Nowhereville, USA, and, and this is our ticket out of the, here. It was like very quickly, it, it, you know, they'd be stars in middle school and maybe very early on in high school. And it was just like the one thing that they could do to show that they were rebelling right. their parents was, hey, I'm not going to do the one thing that you seem to care about. And that is. Yeah. Or when like something that brings you joy now is me- is like all about how like it measures your worth. Exactly. You know, or your value, it's, it like steals that joy so fast. And, you know, I found as I compete more and I've had more success running, I have to be mindful of that balance, right? Really mindful because it's easy to want to get into that competitive mindset just with myself. Like, I, you know, I don't have sponsors who are pressuring me. Like that's been a choice because I feel like I need to run from the inside and not 
based on what other people want from me or expect or, you know, and, um, but I still have to be mindful of the pressure I'm putting on myself. And, um, so that I think has been a really interesting journey. Um, and it's something also I'm just watch watching with my kids. Like people are always like, well, your kids must run. And I'm like, well, they run and ski and, you know, they do everything. We do river trips. Like we bike, we've been biking like crazy during the pandemic. And, uh, but no, I'm not pushing them to be competitive runners. Like maybe they'll, if they, if they take to it on their own, um, I would love that. But, you know, some people ask me like, of course I must be raising runners. And, um, like I'm just, my main thing is I want to raise, um, kids who are stewards of the outdoors and the environment and who like are really comfortable in their bodies, like, and, and, you know, have confidence in themselves and are strong and believe in their power and have that sense of, of internal strength that you get from being an athlete, but I don't, they don't need to compete. They can, you know, I just want them to be comfortable in their bodies and, and movers. Like I've always been a mover and that's just my, like I've always linked creativity with movement because when I was a kid, like I said, I just, I'd ride my bike around the neighborhood. It was, you know, I had so much freedom when I rode my bike. And when I moved outside, I would, my ideas would flow like when my body flowed. And, um, so the two have always been so linked and I've, I've heard lots from people who never felt at home in their bodies or had, um, you know, a lot of body image issues or, um, struggled with themselves and their bodies. <clears throat> and for me, I, I just, my body was kind of my tool for my, my imagination, if that makes sense. And so I feel so fortunate that I've always like lived in my body and felt ho- at home there. And that's in many ways what the title of my book running home is about. I mean, it's running home into myself and to, to that really secure place. But, um, so that's really what I want for my kids. And, and I, so for sure movement is part of every day and getting outside, like we have to move outside every day, but we, do they have to compete or win things? No, no. I want them like, I'm taking the really long view. I want them when they're my age to love moving in nature under their own power, whatever that is. Well, it's admirable. Um, I, I, uh, I appreciate it. And I, 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 I'm hopeful that more parents will listen to this and, uh, and, and I hope, and, well, and especially we, now because organized sports are on such a hiatus, you know, there's so much question around what we're going to be able to go back to. And I think team sports are great. You know, I, I think kids need that, especially girls. I think it's really positive, you know, to have a team sport element in the, in their sort of repertoire. Um, but I do think we can get overrun by that and we can just be the sideline parents where the kids playing and then like the other kids and the adults and the family are watching, you know? And so we just try to balance the organized sports with family sports or family activities. Like skiing has been great. Um, but um, I think that this, the vacuum left right now, at least from team sports is an opportunity, right. For us as parents to, um, do things with our kids outside that we haven't done before and do things as a family. Like that's why biking is so great. 
and you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to go on trails, just cruise the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, it's something that we're all doing together is, um, healthy for everyone. And my girls know when I need to move, they're like, mom, you're really grouchy. It seems like you need to go for a bike ride and I'll be like, okay, let's go. And then we come back and we all feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think just being in motion is a really, I mean, that said a big component of kind of my evolution as a runner and an athlete and a writer and a mother is learning to be still. And so having a developing a meditation practice and a stillness practice is really important. So I'm not just saying like, be this like frenetic mover all day, like learn to be still and quiet because that's how you tap into that voice inside that knows kind of what you need um, and always has the answers. So it's, it's a balance, but you know, my sitting is a fraction of my moving. I like, Actually, I shouldn't say that. Like my medita- I'm getting I'm getting better endurance for meditation. You know, now I can sit like 30, 30 minutes, um, but I can run for you know eight hours <laughs> and sit for thirty. But I think it's just it's an important part, and it's really helped me as an athlete um, sort of not get outside of myself like we were talking about, like not only focusing on the results and the goals and the times, but like being um, in my body and in the experience and um, letting it unfold as it will. And I think that was really a big part of my success at Leadville was being in that flow state. And I can more easily get to it when I'm in that a, a mindful, awake place and not always out striving for the result. I think if I'd been trying to win, I probably wouldn't have won. If you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's partially why we're seeing some of the performances that we're seeing, not just because um, people are not having to travel as far and, and they're able to just kind of roll out of their own bed and go do these feats around their, literally around their backyards. Um, but um, I, I, I think sometimes when we put the pressure on ourselves to perform, uh, especially yeah. for other people, that's where, mm-hmm. that's where a lot of pressure comes from. Whereas if yeah. you just, uh, just kind of let the day come to you and, and just do what you, what you're naturally, what you've become efficient at doing. And it's just an extension of yourself and an expression of who you are. I think it, it's a totally different um, approach to, to training and racing and, yeah, that's exactly it. You just nailed it. It's like running as an expression of our truest selves. And um, I think when we can take away the pressure or that performance mentality, which isn't to say that like you stop racing or competing, but it's more like if you can find that mindset where you're coming from your deepest part of yourself and you're tapping into this energy that's just naturally in the world. Like I feel that when I run in the mountains there, the mountains have an energy. And if I can sort of put my ego aside and like slot into that energy and move with it, it, you know, it's not that it's easy, but it does feel like it's, more effortless, right? That they, that there's an energy I can be part of versus trying to control it all myself and make it all happen. Yeah. Or, or even fight it. <laughs> like that it's, fight it. It's even worse, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I'm going to dominate, <laughs> not a term that I, that I like to see or hear tweeted, right. but um, you know, that's a, uh, 
yeah, it's a, if you can work in symbiosis with, with that energy for sure. And, and it is a lot of our language. Like I find too, it's like, it's so easy to slip into that language. Like, Oh, I crushed that. Or like, I, you know, I, cr- you know, crush that peak or let's go like bag that or, you know, and it's like, let's find new vocabulary. That's more, um, that we can like be more in harmony with our surroundings versus having to like dominate it or crush it. And I even sort of have, you know, <clears throat> when I first had to, come up for a name with a name for my column for outside raising rippers. Like I had so many names, but I knew that that outside had a certain sort of um, personality that, you know, and a kind of feeling to, to the names that they would want. And so raising rippers is very much like an outside name, you know, but like, do I always think my kids have to be rippers? No. Like I, I just want them to be like, you know, good, good citizens of the outside world. And, uh, and caretakers but it's just it's funny it's like the language a lot of it is unconscious we don't know the message it's sending um and and what it might be holding us back from exactly yeah yeah even if we're not conscious of what we're saying we're likely thinking the same things and so uh we need to change our our frame of mind as well um and i think that can really help like you know from a from a quote unquote performance standpoint is like when we get into that mindset and it's a real mental training of like, okay, what are the words I want to say to myself and how do I want to approach this objective or race? And like, what's my, what's the feeling I want? And and that's how I approach a lot of my races is like, you know, towards the end of a training cycle. And I use that term loosely because I've really never followed a specific training plan (laughs) or cycle, but, you know, toward the end of like, when I'm getting near my, the race or objective, like I'll usually have a run where I'll think, okay, that's how I want to feel in the race, you know, and I'll just, I'll be conscious of it and be like, and I might not have set out to, I didn't go into that day, like being like, today is the day I'm going to, I want to create the feeling I'm going to have in the race, but I I know it afterwards. And I'm like, okay, remember this feeling. And if you can duplicate this feeling, you're going for feeling like it's nothing what my watch is saying. Like I rarely run my watch anyway. So it's like, if I can have this feeling of being in flow and at ease and feeling confident, this is what I want to do on race day. And, and so it's like, I try to imprint that feeling into my body and mind and take it with me. That's beautiful. Um, one thing that I, that I love about your book and, and writing is, um, I mean, we're talking about a memoir, but I, I would say that it, it could also serve as a, as a book on, on running, but as a book mm-hmm. on grief and a book on motherhood. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, there, there's so much mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Again, I, I can't say enough. Thank you for saying that. We, you, you also lead running and writing retreats, and I was mm-hmm. wondering what the goals are of those retreats and, and who are those designed for? Um, because I, I assume that many people that are listening are kind of like, "Wow, how, how can I learn more about this?" And I yeah, I, I, it's, some it's of really included in, in those retreats. Yeah, it's. Um... The two, like I said, running and writing or running and creativity, it doesn't, you know, um, have been always so linked to me being a body in motion. And when you're in that sort of repetitive state outside, you kind of get into this um, moving meditation or waking daydream. And there's, you know, been studies on how daydream is 
is such a fruitful activity for creativity and for innovation. And so um, I kind of just stumbled on that as a kid, right? That I, you know, when I, when I rode my bike, I would write stories in my head. And, um, but that's really how I've been a writer and a runner in the world since then um, is kind of both are happening at the same time. And so my retreats are really geared for people who, um, you know, are runners, but don't have to be serious runners and are interested in writing, but also don't have to be serious writers. Like you don't have to be, you know, trying to get published. People say to me like, well, I'm not a real runner or I'm not a real writer. And I always just will say, well, do you run? And they'll say yes. And they're like, then you're a real runner. Like, you know, that we let's just take the word real out of the, of the conversation because people are always sort of undercutting themselves. So it's really like to explore that flow state of when your body is um, flowing and moving, your ideas are too. And this can have a benefit for you if you are in business or a full-time parent or, you know, are in the creative industries, you know, whatever sort of your real life scenario is, like when we tap into that internal creativity that we all have. It's like a little engine. And I write about this in my book. And it's in us all. Like no one is deficient in creativity. The question is, how do you awaken it? And how do you tap into it? Right. And for me, and for the people who have come on my retreats, one of the best ways in is through motion. And I also, you know, the, the retreat I led right before the um, everything shut down from the pandemic was a running retreat in Utah. And it was, you know, an amazing group of diverse women. It's not, I don't just do for women, but this one was a women's only retreat. And we had a real diverse range of runners and women of color and mothers and, and younger runners. And, um, and some had a writing practice, right. Where they, um, had, you know, kept notebooks or journals and some were new to it. And we incorporate meditation because that's a really good place to tap into that inner voice. So it's really about like tapping into your intuition and expressing that and learning to express your true self through whatever, you know, is your sort of purview in life. And, um, and so we do running and sitting and writing and um, in beautiful wild places and, um, it was, yeah, it was a tremendous experience, but I am leading one in September in Santa Fe. That's a writing and, um, it's more walking. It's more of like an exploring retreat. Um, but you know, other for, you know, future retreats, we're still planning because everything has been so uncertain with the pandemic, but, um, I post these on my website and so you can find out information there, but um, it's really about that symbiosis of sort of the mind body and the heart, which is, has our, you know, our real truth is in our heart and um, learning to express that. I want to attend. <laughs> <laughs> and the wilderness is a big part of it, right? Because yeah. for me, you know, as a runner, like I'm not really running on the roads because for me, running is a way to get into nature, I think, ultimately. Um, and it's the fastest way I know. And so these retreats have, will, you know, have a big component of being in the wild, because I think when we go into the wild outside of us, we go into our own wild and, um, and find that truth that we may be, you know, hesitant to say, or don't even know, but is in us. Um, and 
so it's really getting into that flow state where your mind, body, and spirit are kind of um, in this kind of great, it's like a flywheel when you get it going. It's like this, you don't run out of energy, right? And they feed each other. The The creativity feeds your um, your movement and your movement feeds your creativity. And it's just like, boy, when it gets it going, it's this really cool energy wheel. Um, it, it, it really sounds like a lot of fun. I, w- I was thinking of me being there myself and thinking about Come, people yeah. enjoy it. Um, thank you. <laughs> I, I think part of the reason I enjoyed your book so much in addition to everything else that I've already mentioned is that um, I was actually born in the Four Corners area of New Mexico. Oh, wow. And um, so it was, I know that's not where Santa Fe is, but it was somewhat nostalgic um, because I did grow up the first 12 years of my life. And then actually when you and I met, I was back in the Southwest. Um, yeah. Um, I, I have this longing for the Southwest. And, and so some of your descriptions of um, the spirituality, um, the mountains, the aridness, <laughs> all of it. Yeah. Um, I, I really like the Southwest and, and uh, Santa Fe is has a, a rich history of, of diverse cultures coming together and, and so many artists and creatives and, and all the rest. So um, someday yeah, it's, if you see my name you, on the roster of, of that of, would be amazing. I would love that. Yeah. Santa Fe. I mean, New Mexico, like so many things in my life, it was kind of an accident. Like that, that first race I ran was an accident. Um, you know, moving to Santa Fe, it wasn't an accident in that like I knew I was coming to work for outside, but it was supposed to just be a three month internship. I was 23 and, um, you know, 25 years ago, next month, any day now I'm having my 25th anniversary. And like for the first couple of years, my mom would be like, okay, when are you coming home? And I didn't even have, you know, I literally drove out here in my Jetta with my mountain bike on the roof and a pair of rollerblades, speaking of rollerblades, in the trunk. I had no idea. I'd never been to Santa Fe. I'd never been to the Southwest. I didn't know that all the roads here were dirt still, like in town. And so I just tootled out here with my rollerblades because that was my sport in New York City. I was moving from Manhattan. And I was actually telling my girls this last night. I was like, you know, when I was in New York City, I would come, I would walk home from work, you know, 30 blocks, and I would go home and put on my rollerblades and then rollerblade back to Central Park and do laps around. It. And that was my sport. Like I wasn't into really running then. And, uh, but, but, you know, 25 years later, I'm still here. And like, boy, it's amazing. You don't really know what life is going to throw at you and like how it's going to all work out. But, um, it's pretty amazing that I'm still here and I love it. Like there's a lot of soul here. And I, and I think that's why from the beginning, New Mexico felt like home, like it's really real and it's not all pretty, you know, it's, there's a little bit of grit here. Um, but it's really itself. And I think I've always tried to live that way. It's just really myself and, um, it's not always pretty, but, um, it sort of reflects kind of how I try to live. No, it, um, I appreciate you being so authentic and so <laughs> real, um, and gritty. Um, and, uh, it is reflected, uh, in the way you live and also in your writing and, um, really appreciate you taking this time today to share with us. And, um, I hope that as many listeners as possible will, will also take some time to, to read your articles and, um, read or listen to your book and, um, and learn more about 
Paul, that you have to share. Um, it, it really is um, up there as like one of my all-time favorite running books. Um, oh, amazing. It, it goes well beyond running and um, it has, it's been really impactful in my own life. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for sharing that with me. It means so much to hear that. Well, um, I, I, I wouldn't say it (laughs) if I didn't mean it. (laughs) I believe that. I believe that. Thank you. You're real too. (laughs) Um, and I, uh, I'm excited to hear more about your new book. Um, maybe we can save that for another episode unless you want to keep it. No, it's sort of like the next chapter, right? It kind of picks up where running home leaves off. Like, um, just sort of as like ultra is really like, I'm really coming into it. Um, but understanding that it's more than my body, right. That like, you have to go really like maybe my mind is my most powerful asset, you know, and, um, and that sort of translates to obviously not just running, but being a writer and a mother and a human trying to make a difference in the world. And, um, so yeah, it's kind of the next chapter and there's, there's some, um, excitement and misadventure and, um, some highs and some very low lows and, um, the Leadville stories included. So yeah. And, and like my running book, running home, which is really, a book about running that's not about running. This too is a book about running that's about a lot more than running. There's a fair bit about rivers in yeah. this book, and um, just kind of that metaphor of mountains as this like very strong stalwart thing in our lives, and like it's our own inner strength as a mountain, and then to also be a river, right, and to be fluid and um, ever changing and kind of responding to terrain and circumstances. And so it's really like, you know, my life in mountains and rivers and like how to live as both and what they can teach us. That's beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm <laughs> looking forward to uh, <laughs> reading it and, and, and hopefully you'll also narrate that one. And so we can listen yeah, to it. I hope so too. I love that. I love that. Um, well, Thank you again. And, and let us know when, uh, even if it's available for pre-order and we'll, we'll yeah. try with our very small audience, we'll try and get the word out. Um, You're awesome. And we can have you back on. And um, I, again, I really appreciate uh, who you are and what you do. Um, even, even just with your own children, um, but the fact that you're willing to at least share some of that with the rest of us and, and help those of us that are, that are fumbling through life trying to figure yeah, out how to... aren't we all fumbling every day? I think that's the kind of secret is like, we're really just all fumbling and, you know, trying to do the next right thing and then the next after that, but screwing up a bunch. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, we'll- Jacob. It's been a real treat. A really great conversation. My place. Thanks. Okay. Like you, our lives have been impacted by the uncertainty in the world. While we appreciate some of the lessons that we have learned by slowing the pace of life down a bit, we also recognize the value of routine and consistency. We believe in setting goals and working toward them. Given that so many in-person races have already been canceled or postponed in 2021, we've created a virtual race series for the athletes that we coach at Peak Run Performance to put some dates and distances on their calendars to work and train towards throughout the year. We believe that the collective momentum of a community working toward a common goal can be empowering and motivating. We also feel that it can provide a greater sense of accountability. 
We are offering this race series to the athletes we currently coach at Peak Run Performance, but figure that we might as well invite others to join in on the fun. If you are looking for a bit more certainty in these uncertain times, please visit peakrunperformance.com and sign up for the newsletter. We'll be sending out more information about the Peak Run Performance virtual race series in the coming weeks. Today, more than ever, it's essential that we are making the right decisions to keep our bodies healthy, to live better, be resilient, take control, and be proactive for whatever the world throws at us. But we are overwhelmed with nutritional information, leaving us with more questions than answers. Does that even work? Can I trust it? Will that work for me and my goals? How do you know what your body uniquely needs unless you ask it? For the truth seekers, the change makers, and the goal setters, the answers are inside you. Insight Tracker is the ultra-personalized nutrition and wellness platform that analyzes data from your blood, your DNA, and your lifestyle to help you optimize your body and reach your goals. Insight Tracker's patented system will transform your body's data into knowledge, insights, and a customized action plan of science-backed recommendations. Are you ready to take control of your health and wellness journey? Unlock the power of your potential with Insight Tracker. Go to info.insighttracker.com forward slash early access to be the first to hear about Insight Tracker's best deal of the year. Thanks again for listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you found this episode interesting, entertaining, inspiring, or informative, please share it with your friends on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and tag the Art and Science of Running so that we can reshare it. Better yet, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. This will help others with similar interests find this free resource that we've created for listeners around the world. Many thanks in advance.